If you would take your Bibles and turn to the book of John, page 901 of the Pew Bibles in front of you, the book of John and chapter 14. We're going to continue our study through this section of John. This morning, we'll be looking at John 14. If you don't know the Bible or are not acquainted with it, that's going to be the big, bold, black number 14 on page 900 of that Pew Bible. And then you're going to look for the little number 25. And we're going to go through 25 to 31 this morning, giving attention together to what the Son of God, Jesus Christ, has spoken and been recorded for our use and benefit this morning. We pray he'd lead us in that. What would you like to be thinking about just before you die? Now, we'd all like to believe and think that when it's our turn to die, we're going to be fully aware that it's happening. That may be, and we know that may also not be, giving a particular urgency even to today to listen to what Jesus says is important for life. But let's assume that you see it coming. That in the last two to three days before you pass away, you know that you have only that short time left. What will occupy your mind? Building off of recent weeks, my guess is that we would be thinking about what's most important to us. What we love. Maybe we'd be replaying our lives. Maybe we'd spend it enjoying those we love most. Maybe just trying to appreciate those last few precious moments of life. How much do you think you'll be thinking about others in those final days? Do you think we'll spend our final moments serving people to whatever capacity we can? Whether it be actively serving people and looking after their interests or just praying because we're bedridden and unable to do more than that? Do you suppose we'll be planning how we can do good for others right up to our last day? Well, as we return to the book of John this morning, Jesus is clearly aware that his time is coming to a close. Look at verse 25. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. He's already said that he knows that his time is almost up and he's going to go to the Father. And in verse 31, he invites his disciples to walk one step closer to what will end his life, his arrest and crucifixion. Jesus' end is on Jesus' mind here. Death was imminent. And yet, as we go through this passage, this seems to be the furthest thing from his mind. You could hardly tell that's the fact by his way of life here. And it is to that that we give our attention this morning. In John 13 and 14, we have learned in this study that Jesus The Son of God came to earth and is now about to leave earth, having fulfilled his mission that his Father had given him, to come and bring life with God to sinners. He's been teaching his disciples about how they can walk into that life and how they can have a relationship with God. We've also been seeing that our ability to have this life with God Depends entirely on what Jesus did and does for us. And these themes carry into our passage this morning. And we'll see them very present in John 14, 25 to 31. So as I read this now, try to notice what Jesus is thinking about just before he goes to die. 
These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. But the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You heard me say to you, I'm going away, and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced, because I am going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it takes place, so that when it does take place, you may believe. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me, but I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise. Let us go from here. I think the main idea of this passage is this. In his last hours, Jesus shows us life with God and prepares us for life with God. He shows us life with God and prepares us for life with God. Now, if you've not been with us, and you are visiting here for the first time. Welcome, as Quinn said. Glad you're here. If you're just diving into this study with us, you'll be helped to know that everything Jesus says about life with God that we're seeing him talk about in this section has a major connection to love. So when Jesus lives out this life with God, even at the end of his life, we should not be surprised that the main thing we see coming from him is love. And so in the rest of our time this morning, I'd like to show you from this passage how Jesus shows with us life with God and prepares us for life with God. And there are two main ways here that we see Jesus did that. The first one is Jesus loved us. And the second, Jesus loved his father. Let's look at that first one. In his final hours... Jesus loved us. And we see that primarily in verse 25 to 29 that I just read. Now, take a moment to realize what is happening on the other side and another part of Jerusalem at the very moment that Jesus is speaking these words to his disciples. Judas, just a little while ago, has left the Last Supper in the upper room to go and set in motion a betrayal of Jesus. At the time Jesus is speaking, Judas is negotiating payment to turn Jesus into religious authorities who are desperate to have him silenced. Perhaps even now, the mob is being formed. And who, in verse 25 to 29, is Jesus thinking about? His disciples. And what is he thinking about? He's thinking about doing good for his disciples even after he's gone. How good of a person must you be to to knowingly and, and want to stick around in town when you know there is a hit out on your head? Because sticking around gives you an opportunity to prepare your family for when you're gone. That's the love Jesus shows to his people. For years before she died, my grandmother planned out meticulously all the logistics of her funeral because she didn't want anybody to feel burdened by her death. So I remember 10 years before she died, I remember her taking me to her hall closet and opening it and showing me the dress she wanted to be buried in. 
That's not really Jesus's focus. He's not so much on making sure he isn't a hindrance to them, but he is so focused on helping them advance in his absence. He wants them to keep living with God even after he's gone. And so he gives them here what they need for that. Even at the end, Jesus keeps on loving people. There are three things in this section that Jesus prepared for his people that continue to be available to us, his people, even thousands of years after he spoke these words. In giving them to us, he means each of these to be active in our lives, enabling and empowering our life with God. Three gifts Jesus leaves, prepares for us for our life with God. The first is Jesus prepared our help. Look at verse 26. But the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Now, if you were here last week, you remember we saw how important it is that our life with God be characterized by us loving Jesus by keeping his commands. But how would any of us do that if we couldn't remember Jesus' words or understand what they meant? Jesus, along with the Father, considered ahead of time how much you and I would need his help in this area. We would need him to make sense of what he said. We would need him to help us remember it when we needed to know it. And so he sent his spirit. After he left, he sent his spirit to help first the apostles understand and remember, to help John understand and remember and write down this gospel account. He did it for John's sake. He did it for your sake and mine so that we could hear it even today. He sent his spirit to the apostles, but he sends his spirit to every believer. Everyone who's trusting in Christ this morning to be your savior and shepherd and king. His spirit is now in your heart to be a consistent and persistent voice speaking truth to you. The spirit brings God's life to your heart so that you can hear and discern Jesus's voice. Even this morning as his words are read to you. Jesus is going to leave and the spirit's going to come. So yes, Jesus is no longer physically present with us, but God is still always present with us. We may never audibly hear a voice from God, but Jesus does tell us through his spirit that he will continue to be our shepherd and we as his sheep will know his voice. We regularly feel a need of help, don't we? We get overwhelmed, we get anxious, we get stressed. Work piles up, life gets busy, our inability to be and do mounts up in our face. The things we once relied on fall off, our bodies break, the people we depend upon disappoint us and drift away. Hear God saying he is our eternal help. Christian, God has positioned and continues to position himself in your life to help you, not to hurt you. God is not waiting for you to mess up. He is moving constantly in love to you to help you hear his voice and to know it's him. 
Notice how helpful Jesus thinks his words are going to be for needy people like us. They are so helpful that Jesus guarantees by giving his spirit that we will never not remember what he taught us. So let that be an instruction for us of what to do in our trouble. What does Jesus want us to do? When we're in trouble and we need his help, the help we need is to hear him speaking to us through his word. And that's what the spirit is there to help you do. Perhaps the next time you need help this week, ask the spirit to help you remember what Jesus said that addresses you in your need. Jesus prepared our help. It's the first thing he's giving us for our ongoing life with God. Secondly, before he left, Jesus loved us by preparing our peace. Jesus prepared our peace. Look at verse 27. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give you. Give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled. Neither let them be afraid. As you reflect on what Jesus says here and the distinction between his peace and the world's, what do you suppose the difference is between Jesus' personal peace, what he calls my peace, and the world's peace? Well, Jesus says the difference can be seen in how each peace is given. I think there's probably more uh, to explain here than I've even seen. But I I think at least uh, Jesus is helping us see that the world gives peace without being able to unconditionally guarantee it will remain. So, So the world, as it were, kind of prints a paper currency of peace promises all the time. With no actual like eternal gold security to back it up. Throughout the Old Testament in Jeremiah 6 and 8 for example. God rebukes Israel's leaders for assuring people. That war was not coming against them as a judgment on their rebellion. When God's prophets God's word was saying to them. No it's coming and you need to get ready. The world offers peace in empty words. The world gives peace as a supposed reward from riches. The world tries to give peace as a byproduct of power or fame. The world attempts to give peace on the basis of human agreements and treaties. But none of these things hold forever. Words fail, riches dry up, power changes hands, humans go back on their agreements, and the supposed peace evaporates. What if there could be an unassailable peace? An invincible peace. Insulated from the threat of external wars, lies, and unstable changing circumstances. A peace for all seasons. A peace for all ages, in all times, in all circumstances. A peace that could even presumably exist through a war or a fight. Thrive even in the hurt of false friends. Endure even when valued possessions slip away. Well, that's exactly what Jesus is giving. An eternal peace that comes with his presence. 
I think he means for us to connect the coming of his spirit in verse 26 with the outcome of peace in our hearts. Verse 27. In other places, the Bible will describe the Holy Spirit as God's down payment on his promise to us. That we are his and we will surely one day live with him forever. So Paul writes in Ephesians 1.13. In Jesus, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Now, if you're listening to this and realizing through it that you do not have this peace, but you want it, let me point you to the giver of peace, Jesus Christ. The reason a person can try to find lasting peace in this world and never find it is because that kind of peace can only come from God. The Bible says that we are born into this world at war with God. We in our hearts struggle and resist his rule over us, even though he is our creator and our rightful king. Until we surrender that war, until we willingly lay down arms in that rebellion and ask for his forgiveness and welcome him as king over us to come and reside in us, eternal peace will elude you. No matter where you look. The good news of Jesus is that he died to take away the penalty for our rebellion. He rose from the dead to make a way for us to have peace with God. So to have this peace with him, you only need to abandon your rebellion against him. And trust his death and resurrection are now your hope for life. Jesus gives his peace to our hearts. In verse 27, Jesus says, with the gift of his peace in our hearts, our hearts don't need to be troubled or afraid. The presence of God through his Holy Spirit in your heart, Christian, is the power that is capable of evacuating your heart of fears. Let me say that again. The presence of God through his Holy Spirit, Christian, in your heart right now and guaranteed for all time is the power that is capable of evacuating your heart of fears. Our hearts can be so protected in Jesus's peace that no other force can touch that most innermost part of us. Our bodies can be killed, but our hearts and our souls kept by God live on. Our, our heart organ that pumps the blood, gives us oxygen, that could flatline one day. But in the spirit, our life will continue beating. So you may be crippled by fears and anxiety this morning. Maybe not. Maybe you just recognize or are willing to recognize that at least on occasion you stress out about tomorrow. Either way, I think we're all interested to know how we could possibly live without fear and anxiety. I mean, we do everything else to try to get rid of it. Take medicine. We exercise more. We X, Y, Z. Wouldn't you be interested to know how Jesus promises to take care of your fear and anxiety? 
If you're a Christian, the answer is not even to ask God for peace. You don't need to ask for it. Jesus has already given it. He hasn't withheld that from you. He, he prepared it for you. And if his spirit is in you, it's there. The answer is to live according to what is already there. So, so to recognize, in other words, that the abiding presence of God in your heart means that you can never be more eternally safe, known, loved, watched over, and provided for than you are right now. You might need to assess the threats, your fears, and anxieties posed to your heart this morning as you think about them. They can often seem eternally significant, can't they? The worries of today cloud out all view of tomorrow or eternity. I know what that's like. But the question is, are they actually that powerful of a threat? If you find at the end that you didn't save enough for retirement, would that threaten your eternity with God? No. If you lose your reputation on the basis of lives, are you not still God's child? If your family disowned you because you believe in Jesus, is that going to alter the course of your eternity? If you lived a plain life, End it in relative obscurity despite once having dreams of so much more. Does that mean your chance at eternity with God and life with him forever is forfeit? No. There is no threat. There is no worst case scenario that can successfully evict the spirit's presence from your heart. And as long as he lives at home and lives in you, peace is there to stay. It is yours. Now, I know oftentimes if I am a case that proves uh, the rule, and I think I am, and talking to many of you, I think you would agree, we need each other to help us in this. Because fear and worry can overwhelm us individually. Things can seem to us so obviously destined for something bad. But then a brother or sister comes in and talks to us, points us to Jesus, helps us trust him, prays with us. And we now can see how God can be working. We have the opportunity every time we talk to each one, each other about our worries to remind one another that Jesus's peace is a greater power than any fear. Jesus prepares our help and he prepares our peace. Thirdly, this text shows us that Jesus in his leaving, prepared our faith. Look at verse 28 and 29. You heard me say to you, I am going away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I'm going to the father for the father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it takes place so that when it does take place, you may believe. Look at verse 28. Jesus' statement there can be hard to follow. Uh, it's kind of one thing building on another. It can be hard to follow until we figure out what he means by the Father is greater than I. Now, I, Jesus is not saying here that the Father is God and Jesus is not. That would go directly against other things he says about his divinity and in nature. Though, and some people would claim that this is a place where we see Jesus is not claiming to be God. I just think it's utterly false and goes against the witness of Scripture. 
Instead, I think Jesus, in saying the Father is greater than I, I think he's trying to explain to the disciples why they should have been happy for him. Because he is going back to what he left behind. Um, That when he chose to pursue a life of humility through becoming human, he stepped out of heaven. He he stepped out of the near presence of the, the father, his father, and the love he shared with him. He had left that in order to come and offer us salvation through his death. The son did that. But when the son did that, the father didn't do that. The father retained all the glory and position he had. And so now finally, at the end of his mission to do what the father had sent him to do, Jesus is now looking forward to finally getting to return to his father. Having followed the call and command his father gave him. So believer, just appreciate all that Jesus gave up in order to bring you back to the father. Every moment he was longing to get back home. Every moment just couldn't wait to be back with his father. But he willingly laid it down to bring you with him when he goes. But the disciples don't see that, obviously. And and they don't rejoice for Jesus that he was getting to return to his father. Because the disciples, Jesus says, weren't loving Jesus. They were thinking about themselves. When Jesus said he was going away, all that they could think about and have been thinking about in their reflection, in their questions, is that how him leaving would affect them when he's gone. We're trying to avoid that as an outcome. Notice that Jesus is saying, through his interaction with the disciples, that we experience joy. This is what the disciples missed. But we will experience joy when we love others in such a way... That we are glad for them when they experience God's goodness in their life. The main obstacle to experiencing that kind of joy in our life is what the disciples are reflecting. Self-interest. Self-interest blocks our ability to rejoice with others. And God's goodness in their life. Also notice that Jesus says one way to love him is to be happy for him that he's now back with his father. Now, this is a thought to deepen our relationship with Jesus this week that you might not normally think about. So when you talk to Jesus and express how thankful you are for him and what he's done for you, also express thankfulness and gratitude that he gets to enjoy his father after after setting that aside for your sake. Rejoice with Jesus in that. This kind of love for Jesus that we have in the the joy that he's experiencing right now with his father is also going to help us love each other. See, when you're jealous of what someone has, it's hard to be happy for them. When you're envious and wish we had the good someone else is enjoying from God's hand, it is near impossible to fully love that person. But we know we truly love someone when we see that they are blessed and we rejoice, even if it came at a cost to us. So what can change our self-interest, our self-love into this Jesus love? 
What can move our troubled, self-interest hearts into glad and joyful hearts in Jesus? Well, I think it's what Jesus provides when he says, I will give you to believe. The gift is faith. The ability to know that without that we are without Jesus now, and yet he is alive and with his Father, and he's coming back for us. That is faith engaged. And why it is so good for Jesus to be with the Father, and why it's so good for us that he's coming for us. Isn't it often the case that when we are believing God is at work, we have a much easier time when things don't go the way we plan? When we trust that Jesus is reigning with the Father and are rejoicing in the position he holds in that way, that is when we are quickest to say, God, whatever you ordain for me is right. Jesus knew there were going to be things that his disciples didn't understand or believe until he was gone. But his plan to, help the, his plan to send the help of the Spirit would take care of that. He's already thought about that. So when your faith is weak from discouragement or doubt or uncertainty, remember that Jesus has already sent your help in the Holy Spirit. He brings peace to your heart. He brings strength to believe. By preparing for our help, Jesus prepares for our peace and our faith. So see all the ways Jesus prepared before he left for your life with God. He prepared to send your spirit. He prepared prepared for your peace in all circumstances. He prepared to give you belief in him to sustain you through all things. Do you see what Jesus, in Jesus' mind, do you see what he's identifying as the things you need that he needs to give you in order for you to have a thriving life with God? It's not a job. It's not a relationship with someone else. It's, It's not a house. It's not a career. No, Jesus is saying, before I go, I want you to have the essentials from my hand to your heart, the help of my spirit. He wasn't concerned about our position in this world. He was concerned about bringing the peaceful presence of him to our hearts. Not some great ongoing experience of miracles today is what Jesus puts his finger on, is what we need. But he knows we need from him the assurance and trust that what he said he would do. And we have all those things. Life with God begins in our hearts. As if Jesus is taking these three treasures, his spirit and peace and faith and kind of Unlocking your heart, believer, when he caused you to believe in his good news of Jesus Christ. Unlocking it, placing them in there, closing the door, and locking it. Now unable to be touched by opponents, changes in circumstances, disappointments, or threats. If you have his spirit, if you have his peace, if you have his faith in you, though at times they may say dim, seem dim, they may seem small, they may seem slight, you can know that Jesus loves you. And from that, Jesus' love and gifts to you are going to yield all kinds of visible fruit in your life. You'll be more steadfast, patient, calm, sober-minded, measured, not dominated by emotion, not self-centered. So pray this week that the evidence of your life and mine at home, at work, and as a church would show that God is indeed our help, our peace, and the provider of our faith.
how many different ways Jesus might have spent his last hours. And he chooses to act in the interest of his people. (laughs) Even when his disciples were all the while trying to convince him to do otherwise. Imagine if he hadn't left. Imagine if the disciples had gotten what they wanted, were trying to persuade Jesus of. Then they wouldn't have ever been prepared for life with God, and we wouldn't either. Praise God for how he sees ahead of us and knows what we need and does what's needed to give it to us. In his final hours, Jesus loved us, and by loving us, he prepared us for life with God. Secondly, secondly, in his final hours, Jesus loved his father. He loved us, and secondly, he loved his father. Look at verse 30. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me, but I do as the father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the father. Rise, let us go from here. Now remember, Jesus has been in the upstairs room in this building, having the last supper with the disciples in chapter 13. He dismissed one of those disciples, Judas Iscariot, to go and betray Jesus. It, it was a kind of perfect political alliance because the religious authorities at the time were growing very angry about Jesus' popularity and his claims to be God. So they promised to pay Judas to lead them under the cover of darkness to where Jesus would be that night. In a little while, a small mob will seize Jesus in a place called the Garden of Gethsemane and take him away to eventually be crucified on a cross. And Jesus knew it all was going to go down. He knew it all. He knew his life was destined for opposition. He knew the man he had invested three years of his time and love into would trade Jesus' life for 30 pieces of silver in Judas's pocket. Ever since Jesus arrived on the scene teaching that he had come to set up God's kingdom rule, a war was brewing. It was inevitable. See, because for a long time before Jesus came, this world had existed under the powerful influence of God's enemy. Satan, a rebellious angel created by God who turned his attention against God because Satan hated God's good rule and wanted to rule himself. So with Jesus' arrival and miraculous ministry of breaking curses over people that's been going on for three years up to this point, Satan's rule has finally come under direct threat. So finally, Satan sniffs out an opportunity. He finds an opportunity in Judas's greed and the religious authorities hate. Friends, be careful. What may seem like a little grudge or a small dream for more can become a foothold for the evil one to try to tear down God's kingdom. Satan succeeds, actually, in convincing all parties to act on their their desires, even though it would mean the death of the innocent man and the Son of God, Jesus. In a little while, Jesus will breathe his last breath, hanging on a cross after suffering through hours of torture and humiliation. By all accounts, as you follow this narrative up to this point, it would seem that Jesus' success and influence was about to be cut short by forces outside his control. But that is not Jesus' understanding of the situation. Yes, Satan was at work. 
Yes, men were scheming to kill him by cunning and strength, but Jesus says he is going to the cross, not coerced by others, but compelled by his own love for his father. For Jesus to obey God was better than life. Jesus loved the Lord with all his heart and all his soul and all his mind and all his strength. And just as he had told his disciples that to love him was to obey his commands, Jesus shows what that love looks like in full, obeying the Father's instructions even to death. In order to appropriately explain how Jesus' life would end, we must take this conversation with the disciples into account. Jesus died on a cross because that's what God his Father ordained for him to do. And he willingly obeyed. This is the way the father directed the son. Ever since the world fell into the grip of sin in the Garden of Eden, this was the plan that was meant to unfold in the Garden of Gethsemane. Ever since Satan succeeded, as he thought, in tempting humanity to give up life with God forever, God knew he would send his son, the king, to crush Satan and restore life to people with God. Jesus died because he loves sinners. Jesus died because he gave his life for you, a sinner, and me, a sinner, to be a sacrifice in your place and mine to cover the penalty we deserve to pay for our sin and rebellion against God. That is true. He loves sinners. But Jesus also died. And he says why he died here. Because he loved his father. He even tells his disciples that he wants the whole world to know through his act of obedience that he loves God and God loves him. What an amazing thing to say. Jesus couldn't have possibly been any less self-interested than he is being right here. He's about to have his life ended. His concern is that in dying, everyone would see that what he cared most about was loving his father. Man, how easy it can be for us to avoid obeying God when things get hard. When when life gets difficult and trials mount, we often question first, God, do you even love me? We often use difficulty as an excuse for disobedience, but Jesus is obeying through the trial and the temptation. He certainly could have taken a different route out of that upper room, one that led far away from Gethsemane or a cross. But his dominant thought was to obey God, even though he knew what that would cost. Friends, our culture would have you believe the lie That submission always leads to oppression. But Jesus disagrees. He shows that through his submission to his father, he is enjoying total freedom from fear. The real oppression of the human heart occurs when we live entrapped in the lie. Then in following our own will, we can actually find life and peace. That's the real oppression. If you want to find peace, you find it in a life obeying God. We should marvel that Jesus, a man and God, could be this calm, this unafraid, this God-focused at such a dangerous time as this. How 
could he be that composed and courageous? Because he knew that he was obeying the Father. And that's all that mattered. If you're being tempted right now by your superiors at work to disobey God, remember that your Savior Jesus shows you a better way. For all of us, never obey someone who tells you to disobey God. It's not worth it. Jesus loved the Father, so he naturally wanted his Father's will to be done. So in obeying Jesus, Jesus is simply aligning his desires with the Father's. Obeying God is the best way to live in union with God. Remember that for our marriages and our families, even our church relationships. Divisions and conflicts can often arise between us because the other person goes against what we want. But the solution to our fights is for all parties to agree and act on a desire that it be God's will be the thing that rules all our relationships, not our own. And doesn't Jesus show us the depth of life and love that can exist when we're living with God? There's no purer love than this. Jesus knew full and undivided union with his father. He knew the peace he was promising his disciples because it was his peace that he had with God. Knowing suffering was coming, Jesus was calm. Knowing that others would harm him, Jesus entrusted himself to the will of his father. Why? Because there was such a bond of love between God, the father and son, that not even death could dissuade them from prizing their unity. Jesus' love for the Father is an eternal love. It cannot be threatened, diminished, distracted, or ended by anything. No sword, no scheme, no government, no power was threat enough to convince Jesus to trade away his life with his Father. And the fact that Jesus went obediently to that cross, died and rose again, that It is confirmation now that not only can Jesus not be separated from the Father, but anyone who is hid in him through his death and resurrection for you, you also cannot be separated from the love of the Father. There is a whole world, a reality that operates at a level we do not see. A life in God, Father, Son, and Spirit that nothing in this world can touch. A life that can never be ended. Friends, to know that kind of love and enjoy that kind of a life, that's what Jesus died to give you. That's why the Father sent his Son to die. That's the reason Jesus knew his Father told him to come to earth to save sinners from death and bring them into life by the power of his resurrection. When you are united to Christ, it's then that the curse of your sin and death dies with him on the cross. When he rose from the grave in faith through him, we rise. You believer can now say that in Christ's power, only the spirit of God has claim on you. Despite his attacks, his temptations, Satan has no grip on you. Despite the appeals to your comforts and pleasures and feelings, and the body that pulls that you live in, none of those can now, can now assert any authority over you. Jesus clearly loved God. 
and it became life for us. So we've seen how Jesus lived at the end of his life. He lived and died to love others and love God. How does Jesus affect how you want to die? How would you like to spend your last hours like he did? Living with God. Loving others. Why not start now? Jesus shows us what this life with God looks like. And Jesus offers that life to us through his obedient death as a savior for sinners. So let's spend just a moment before I pray in quiet, asking him to prepare us for that same life by giving us his help, his peace, and faith. Lord, we thank you that your will is good and perfect, and you've demonstrated it here by showing us that you've conceived of and prepared for everything we need for life with you, your son and the gifts he brought in spirit, peace, and faith. Oh God, maintain in us uh, a heart and hearts that welcome your gifts as what we most truly need. Keep us dependent on you and not other things that mislead us. Lord, we pray for aligned desires of our hearts, even as we go from here, that you be king and no one else, that you rule and no other threaten. We pray that as we close our time in singing, that the anthem of our song would carry into where our hearts remain this week, that whatever you ordain is right. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.